0: Uh, Thank you to our principal funder, Arts Council England, and thanks also to Bath Spa University for sponsoring this event. We're very grateful for your help and support. Um, So uh, the way we're going to do the event is that uh, Maya is going to read first, followed by Matthew, then we're going to have a discussion, and then um, they'll still be on stage, and if there's time at the end, they'll read a poem or two. Uh, to finish off the event. I'm delighted to be introducing this event featuring two wonderful poets who've just published their second collections. Maya C. Popper will be reading from Wound is the Origin of Wonder, published by Picador, and Matthew Hollis's um, will be reading from Earth House, published by me at Bloodaxe. Maya's collection was published in the US by Norton last year, and I wanted very much to publish it here Uh, But so did my good friend Colette Bryce at Picador and neither of us knew that we were bidding each against each other with her agent um, When the agent was in touch with us Um, But while I was greatly disappointed uh, I was delighted for Maya that she now has a brilliant editor to work with in the UK in Colette Bryce So Maya Popper is a Romanian-American writer academic and editor currently based in New York while she's also been studying for her PhD at Goldsmiths in London. She's the daughter of political refugees and she served on the board of the Bella Abzug Leadership Institute and in 2021 was commissioned by the United Nations Girls Education Initiative to write and deliver the opening remarks in the form of a poem for the UN International Day of the Girl. In 2018, she became the first woman to serve as poetry editor of Publishers Weekly the largest international trade publication, which is a very important um, area for promoting poetry uh, to, a, to a much wider book trade audience. Uh, she's won numerous awards in poetry. Uh, she's a former Oxford University Clarendon scholar. Her criticism has received awards from the Poetry Foundation and appears widely, including in the TLS, Poetry, Poetry Review, and London Magazine. And her MA and recently. Uh, completed PhD research focused on how heightened states of attention induced by crises of faith and by wonder respectively spurred romantic and Victorian poets to generate formally innovative works uh, so I, I hope we'll bring that point up in our discussion. Um, she teaches at a New York University and elsewhere um, her debut poetry collection, American Faith, um, published in 2019, received the 2020 North American Book Prize. Her pamphlet, The Bees Have Been Cancelled, was a PBS pamphlet choice in 2017, and she was a 2021 winner of the Poetry Business Pamphlet Competition, judged by Dalgit Nagra and Pascal Petit, for another pamphlet, Dear Life, published by smith Doorstop in 2022. And the title poem, Dear Life, was The Guardian's Poem of the Week in February last year. Poet Maggie Smith said of Meyer's poem, Dear Life, that it's worth the price of entry on its own. If I stopped there, this book would have given me much more than I'd hoped for. But who could stop? Each poem, every single one, startled me with its precision and clarity. At times I gasped. Of course, wonder is related to wound or to pain. And, quote, every bright thing has at its heart a hiddenness. (coughs) It offers when you've... Just about stopped looking, end quote. So we keep looking, we keep going. When I reached the end of this book, I wasn't ready for its spell to be broken, not yet. So I began it again. Uh, Megan O'Rourke has called Myers' collection an astonishment in ravishing, formerly exploratory poems. Popper wheels the rick like a reparative sculpt scalpel, evoking wonder and woundedness in equal measure. So I'm looking forward to this spellbinding reading by Maya, who I'm sure will tell us how wound is the origin of wonder through her poems. I've just dropped something. Uh, no, right. Um, now I've known Matthew Hollis for a quarter of a century. Uh, from some time in the late 1990s when he was living in Edinburgh, uh, Bill Herbert introduced me to him as the editor he wanted to work with on the critical anthology which became Strong Words. Modern Poets on Modern Poetry, published by Bloodaxe in 2000. He went on to publish his debut poetry collection, Groundwater with Bloodaxe in 2004, and it was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award, the Whitbread Poetry Award, and the Ford Prize for Best First Collection, and was a Poetry Book Society recommendation. And his second collection, Earth House, available at the back, uh, followed 19 years after his debut, Like Meyer, Matthew was a poet, editor, writer and scholar, as well as most notably an eminent literary biographer. Um, All of that other work enriching readers in so many areas, but leaving him with little time for his own poetry, something which may be about to change. After working as an editor at Oxford University Press, Matthew joined Faber in 2002, where he showcased the work of a new generation of poets through the Faber New Poets Scheme. Succeeding Paul Keegan as Faber's poetry editor in 2012, a position he's stepping back from this year, but continuing to work with Faber on its backlist, um, annotated editions of the great poets of the past on the Faber list. Now, while while still working at Faber, Matthew produced his two magisterial literary biographies, Now All Roads Lead to France, The Last Years of Edward Thomas, 2011, which won the Costa Biography Award and the H. W. Fisher Biography Prize and was Radio 4 Book of the Week and Sunday Times Biography of the Year. And in 2022, he published The Wasteland, a biography of a poem, which as many of you know, he presented at this morning's Dead Poets Society event, which was a truly wonderful event to be at. Um, Turning to Earth House, in Earth House, Matthew Hollis evokes the landscape, language, and ecology of the Isles of Britain and Ireland to explore how our most intimate moments have resonance in the wider circle of cycle of life. The book revolves around the cardinal points, including his native east of England, and the ancient elements. And what emerges is a moving meditation on time and the transformative phases of nature that cause many forces into its presence. The wisdom of Anglo-Saxon verse, the metamorphoses of Norse and Celtic myth, the stoicism of classical thought in the Far East. The poem is a concern with the present and the past, destruction and renewal, humanity and our environment, making Earth House a timeless exploration of our timed encounter with the remarkable lives of our planet. And as such, it has a strong appeal to readers both of poetry and of nature writing. Um, Tim D, well-known nature writer, the author of Greenery, has called it, A quietly magnificent book, wholly lived, a magnificat in that way, Devoted to the austere and painful truths that, poem by poem, it discovers and, quietly as ever, magnifies. These poems sound a music like the warming subsong of a blackbird from the bare heart of a winter thorn, a cold cheer, a kindling blues. Julia Backburn called it, a magic combination of the delicate and the intense. And Matthew's fellow East Anglian, the late, great Ronald Blythe, the writer of Aikenfield, who died this year, aged 100, called the book Enchanting, What Good Poems. So we can now look forward to hearing Matthew Meyer Popper's Spellbinding Poems, followed by Matthew Hollis's Enchanting Poems. So first of all, would you please welcome Maya C. Popper. And when she's read, Matthew will take the stage and then we'll have a discussion.
1: I also make really good scrambled eggs, but my biography doesn't reflect that necessarily. It's a joke, you're allowed to
0: laugh.
1: <laughs> Hi, I'm so pleased to be here. I'm honored, in fact, to be here, um, reading with Matthew, whose work I deeply admire across all spectrums of that word. So, um, and thank you so much to Neil for that introduction. Um, so I started writing this book in, um, or rather, seriously focusing on the idea that it might be a book in 2019, um, a few months before the pandemic. And so I was here um, and I was researching, as um, Neil said, the, you know, I, I went into my PhD thinking I'd be writing on the role of wonder in poetry and sort of how poets manage to enact what is beyond articulation by definition on the page. Um, and then very quickly found myself in a world that was shut down and required um, a new relationship to wonder. And I I was very lucky in that very early in my research, I stumbled across one theory about the etymology of wonder, which is that it comes from the old German, it's a cognate for the old German Wunder or wound. Um, And so the moment I had that frame, I started thinking, okay, so if in fact wonder is related to wound. How can we think of wonder as a kind of breaching, right? Because the moments in our lives where we've experienced wonder, it's not quite as easy as surprise or awe or admiration. It has a kind of directive in it. It asks you to keep looking and to look more closely. And then I went back and read um, St. Thomas Aquinas, who called it a form of desire. So I was set, essentially. Um, I was in a world that was closed off from many of the pleasures and luxuries we associate with wonder. I spent weeks indoors. I live right next to Mount Sinai Hospital, so one of the major New York City hospitals. And the park just outside my door had been turned into a field hospital for all of the COVID patients who could no longer be admitted into hospitals. So it was a sort of nightmare scene in which to think about wonder. And um, that's the frame for this book. So as you can expect, the poems are about to be very funny and cheery, okay? Um, Here's the opening poem, Dear Life. I can't undo all I have done to myself, what I have let an appetite for love do to me. I have wanted all the world, its beauties and its injuries. Some days I think that is punishment enough. Often I received more than I'd asked, which is how this works you fish in open water, ready to be wounded on what you reel in. Throwing it back was a nightmare. Throwing it back and seeing my own face as it disappeared into the dark water. Catching my tongue suddenly on metal, spitting the hook in my open palm. Dear life, I feel that hook today most keenly. Would you loosen The line, you'll listen if I ask you, if you are, the sort of life I think you are. You should never read the Guardian comments, but if you do, you will find out that it makes perfect sense that I wrote about fishing because Romania has had very strict fishing laws since the 1980s. And as a Romanian, I was taking umbrage at this. I didn't know, but I'm really glad for the commenter who helped me understand my own work. You know, it's always very mysterious to us as poets where inspiration comes from. Um, So I'm I'm Romanian, and I spent many summers in, um, my first language is Romanian. My parents um, immigrated in the 80s during the Ceaușescu regime, and I spent many summers in Romania. And um, like most, you know, I think it's interesting, there are probably two camps of poets, those who really would love to go back to childhood and have nostalgic feelings about it and those who feel sort of terror about it. I'm in the in the latter category. I, I would not go back to childhood, but I did um, have this experience of having very sort of vivid and atmospheric memories of Romania and then seeing the photos and feeling a kind of... Um, that something had been hijacked from me once I saw photos of that time in my life. And so I began thinking about sort of the egregiousness of... of social media and culture and the way we post things. And it sounds like I'm on my soapbox, but I'm not. I was thinking sort of about how we're thieving memory. We're diluting it. We're not allowed to have it properly because we have um, visual proof of it. And as we know, visual proof is not emotional proof. It's not anything really. So everyone is having an island vacation. Somewhere in Greece by the white of it, blues so soaked they emit their own light admiring coastlines from lookouts on cliffs, looking blase in ancient temples. I remember those summers on my father's shoulders when the man would point to the cross on the mountain, ask if it was raining. Full days settled by wildflower and stone, green in a word we gave each day the full human and it gave us tranquil deaths, the beetle's gem-like shell, vacant bee in the window of an ancient tram. I was unsure anyone lived the way I did, slowly, presently, in color, was often by myself speaking to a weed pulled from the local imagination. For what would you forfeit, the real, no one asked before handing me the photographs. There I am, I concede, in a red bandana placed gently in my father's youth, a hush of blue foothills. So this is what it was like, or not unlike, to be me, a virgin in my father's country at six in the unfinished interior. But how to insist on other senses, all their patient sanities, half my body warm, the other damp in clover. The dirt pulled as it dried on my knees. I was hungry simply and feared the mountain. There was time to be afraid and to outlive unaccounted seconds in their coats of chance. Now everyone is lined in spasms of here at the gym then exiting the movie theater. What's happened in between, mislaid inside them, book ended by moments that endure in others. Every feeling, cousin to some vanished one, echoes through the halls of our aloneness. I think poets write prayers often, but this is a prayer called prayer. Prayer. What runs through me could hardly be called piety. It's not patience either, at least not by that name. The pasture's dissolution into darkness, the cow gnawing obediently without notion of infinity, and stars, God, you know all about them. Those evenings I was sure I'd die. You were teaching me to live, I see that now and the gravity of all you did not say, but left me like a map for the intuiting. Slowly I saw the world for what it was, or was it I who grew familiar, that long habit of me? These were the pains I was granted in this life, my face in cold weather, a throbbing at the temples. And because these occasionally left me all secondary anguish, I modeled on yours. I swam in perpetual end of spring knowing no summer could come of it. Used the same shears to trim a leaf of poison and its remedy. I knew enough to know what I was doing. So often, I thought that I was clever, God, and could see the spirit moving within me like a school of fish darting under ice. In the lit up scan of my left breast, bright dashes of calcium, the beautiful doctor used her needle to guide out of me. A metal marker forever near my heart, my mother's heart, her mother's, we are alive and now and still. I'll tell you something I've never told a god. I've been ready for a fight, been ready for suffering. All my allowances came and spent and all the coffers magically replenished. Why galaxies, God, the fit of one palm inside another, this ache of once, I know, I know, not piety. Let me earn what I've got already. There's a museum, there's a museum for everything, right? There's like the museum of buttons and toothpicks. I don't know if there's a museum of toothpicks, but um, if any poet in the room wants to start it, I will gladly join. Um, there's a museum of childhood in Edinburgh, and um, you know, what do I need to say? I mean, that's like fodder for poets, right? You hear that there, there's a museum of childhood in a city you're in, the poem is basically done. Um, But one of my favorite poets is Philip Larkin. Not my favorite people, but my favorite poet. And um, a writer I admire dearly, and he um, called his childhood a forgotten boredom, which feels about right for Larkin, doesn't it? And and so this is thinking about um, a, a friend's childhood that was rather unusual and about Larkin's. In the Museum of Childhood, It's yours, I remember, and Larkin's, who called his a forgotten boredom. How it might just as well have never happened, though it did once. It happened once to you in a house with a moat and no heating, twin voices boiling over in the kitchen below. You'd survive it all, which is to say, forsake, those days turning in you like a pinwheel still, that base from which language understands its failure. There was time to be a part and still a part of something human before the usual forfeiture of green to cities, days blunted by the millstone of duty. Now the hours blink back with the eyes of roadside animals and the disks shrink with not enough of anything worth keeping. You could weep, for all you did not know then was a blessing. The voices hurt and angry, but living nonetheless. The highway throbbing with its dreamed of passages. The museum makes converts out of visitors. I lug youth's icons inside me and believe we bear that loss we caused by our arriving. We were never loved by anything the way tomorrow loved us then. I promised you cheery and thus far I've delivered. Um, Another poem that um, pays silent homage to Larkin. Um, Has anyone ever visited a medium or a tarot reader of any kind? If we were in Brooklyn, all of your hands would be up, by the way. So just to say, I saw some, I saw some gentle, modest nods. I'm, I, won't, I won't point you out, but um, in general, if you see one, things are likely not going well. Um, so <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Um, here's a poem that imagines what it would be like to see a medium. Not that I've ever seen one, I've seen one. Multiple, multiple reading. The medium says it is a past-life connection, two lives, she amends, at least two. This, my life, to mourn you, to work through that other life in which you died, a soldier, writing letters from a border, and I never found a way back into daylight. Needless to say, this was not the good news I had hoped for. I thought she'd offer something conventionally hopeful, direct me to a trap door I failed to see. There was victory in the form of wands or swords, I couldn't say which, an end to grief so utter I'm the mouth it speaks with. What do I do? Thread the past through the present's eye. ask that we meet in the blasted heath between. She said, no, no, that won't be necessary. Just forgive him, first for living, then for dying. What are days for if not to let go of days? Um, one of the oldest poems in the book is um for noah 's wife, who is not really mentioned in the Old Testament, not really i mean she 's a rather important player but um and I wrote it during um the um, to, during one of the major hurricanes to hit new york city that that sort of left all of Wall Street underwater for months and um, this would have been i think in two thousand and fourteen it was hurricane sandy and so that was the first sort of a, kind of apocalyptic reckoning with climate change that I experienced as an adult. Um, and it, this poem hasn't aged well because in it, I think, um, I imagine what it would be like for the plagues to continue and to gain in, in frequency, I suppose. And um, I say something, I think there's a line in here, anything but illness, I beg the plagues. And then a few years later, of course, that's exactly what happens. Letter to Noah's wife. You are never mentioned on Ararat or elsewhere, but I know a woman's hand in salvation when I see it. Lately, I'm torn between despair and ignorance. I'm not a vegetarian. Shop plastic, use an air conditioner. Is this what happens before it all goes fluvial? Do the selfish grow self-conscious by the withering begonias? Lately, I worry every black dress will have to be worn to a funeral. New York eroded filigree. Anything but illness, I beg the plagues. But shiny crows or nuclear rain, not a drop in London, May through June. I bask in the wilt by golden hour light. Lately, only lately it is late tucking our families into the safeties of the past. My children, will they exist by the time it's irreversible? Will they live astonished at the thought of ice not pulled from the mouth of a machine? Which parent will be the one to break the myth? The Arctic wasn't Sisyphus's snowy hill. Noah's wife, I am wringing my hands not knowing how to know and move forward. Was it you who gathered flowers once the earth had dried? How did you explain the light to all the animals? I'll end on um, a poem that is full of hope, and it was written during the pandemic spring of... I suppose, 2020. 2020. And um, the thing about this spring is that if you ask New Yorkers about it, it was the most ecstatic and the most beautiful. And I think what happens, in fact, is that we all got to witness it, right? We weren't on subways. We weren't going into the office at nine and leaving when it got dark and not seeing it. We all watched it incrementally from our windows. And it was... To say that it was a bomb sounds sort of sentimental, but it was powerfully wonderful. Um, and I thought... Of my favorite medieval mystic, we all have a favorite, I know, Um, Julian of Norwich. And, um, you know, her, her, what she's, I suppose, what she's best known for is the lines, All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, which Eliot picks up on in the quartets. But, um, you know, there are these amazing moments in the showings, um, in the Divine Revelations, where she's with Christ and they have these just wonderfully intimate conversations. And there's this moment where he shows her a hazelnut. Um, and sort of helps her recalibrate her thinking about life. And so I, I, I dearly clung to this moment. Um, so I'll end on this and thank you so much for, for listening. I deeply appreciate it. All that is made. The trees were on the verge of rebirth so sudden you'd miss it from one day to the next, would be suddenly alive in it, the pale green bending open to reveal what we'd always suspected was the case that every bright thing has at its heart a hiddenness it offers when you've just about stopped looking in her 30th year Julian was dying no other way to describe the proceeding of events the widening gap between two kinds of life the one lived and the one remembered and Christ came to where she lay, fevered and helpless, sat by her bedside in velvet robes, and opened his palm to show her a hazelnut, saying, this is all that is made. I wouldn't know mercy unless it looked like this, and I'd mistake it for love, though that too is what it is. I understand if you're not prepared to believe in miracles. The hours passed from one invisible hand to the next, but Julian lived to 73 in the 14th century. Maybe life's little more than our own blindness easing. Look, he said, keep looking. How small and round our suffering. Thank you.
2: very much indeed for coming and joining us this afternoon. Uh, it's a treat to read with Maya. Um, she was too modest to say that th- just today the Guardian have reviewed this saying that it's astounding, and it really is. And if you have the chance to take a book away with you today, of the two, no. <laughs> it's wonderful, and it's a um, thrilled to read with her. Um, and also thank you very much, to Neil, for his very eloquent and generous introduction. As Neil indicated, Earth House um, uh, organizes itself around the, the four cardinal points of the compass. And I will read uh, probably just one from each of those points uh, and starting with the north. Um, and the first part of a poem, uh, a longer poem, um, which always gets people worried at the start, doesn't it, when you say something like that? But I'm only reading a short part of it. Stones. The sea is a land in waiting. Each morning, each evening, it turns out its pockets for the strand line. A starfish plaything, an unwrapped cuttle, some days a mermaid's purse. These were the jewels when the jewels were living. And when there were no jewels, there were stones, pebbles, the pennies of the sea, whether we went together or alone, it was these that we scooped and carried home and stacked in a jar by the door. Always we gathered too many. And those we dropped behind us became girls and boys. Those lain in the wash became sea again. Their bodies became water. Their muscles foam. The sea shall call her children home. That is the deal. That much is known. That from water into the air we are thrown. And what makes it from there our own? The dunes are stocked with shoes and socks. And laughter rings beyond the rocks. The stones we drop grow in to men and women. Those that renege on the shore become sea again. The land is a sea in waiting. Neil mentioned that uh, my background, foreground, is East Anglian. um, And the second section of the poems are set and written there and based there. And this particular um, poem uh, is called A Hanser for James. James is my son, who's now about to be taller than I am, but at the time that I wrote this poem for him, he was five and had never been up to the sea in the North Norfolk coast. Um, and I took him gillying for the first time. And uh, if you've never gillied, um, you won't know that gilling is a, is a form of catching crabs with a string and nothing else. Um, and then if you catch them, you throw them back in. Uh, but this was at a time that the action of... Gillying was quite difficult for James, as was his grasp upon other things in life, including language. And we got to talking about some of the local words for the animals that I grew up with, um, and one of them was the hanser, which I described to him. And just for a moment, uh, I could see his uh, his interest in the language and the childhood language flare. A hanser for James. Gillying on Blakeney Key your young hands harrowing the line, as another crab gives up its grip for the safety of the estuary, and your five-year face flares with frustration at this world so slow to reward. How far you are from patience still, from coaxing more from less, wound in ties and single threads as yet too subtle for your engineering. But even the Hanser in his reed bed there had once to learn to talk and bait and spear. And what's a Hanser anyway, you ask? Of all the printed names you've yet to learn, and then the county words worn at the ear, passed in playgrounds and childhood towns, the Hanser is the heron and something in your worldhood fires. What else, you say? The Mavish is the singing thrush. The fulfer is the missal thrush. The millie mothy at his lamp, was once a canker on the branch. The Crescent tail, Erewiggle. The Jacob and the polywiggle The Dodman and the Hodmadod the devlin and the barley bird, the colony of Pishamias, the ranny in the field grass, the guises of the hare we knew, Bandy, Sally, Suki, Sue, the jasper, jaunty at his fruit, the hayjack in his hazel suit, the minifer, the merry may, the hoss, the hen, the Bishibani bee, cast down from your casting thread, your fists punch in their pocket yet to work their catch it's true but yet to humble any living creature some days it seems enough to make it through unharming and unharmed to keep the veil of gentleness from wearing out other days will come within your calling Practiced and articulate and rhymed. Though now it feels like workfulness or forgery. Though now it feels hard won. Stay with me. If you can, you will take up the line. Two more. Moving a little bit further south of the compass, um, I spent time. This is an odd thing to say. I spent time in the Museum of Stones and Bones in Cambridge, um, and uh, there was a there was an animal there which was a sort of early hippopotamus, um, and I spent a lot of time, strangely, with its skeleton. And this was also at the time where um, my daughter was soon to be born, um, and I think perhaps. <clears throat> The concerns and apprehensions of that new responsibility found their way into this skeletal poem called Animal. Earth woke you with an unshook rib. We had no books to base you on. We had no tools to pare you down. So incomplete. You were both catalogue and kit, the takings of a varied ground. All bones became your bones. We laid fibula to femur, radius to humerus. Our ivory, uncommon kid, from such modesty you stood. Light wounded, wind wounded, water slipped from your sternum. You pined for the forest floor, you pined for your own kind but there were no kinds like yours. So bit part, out of epoch, mocked by those from nearer shore. We took them on and laid them down, damned if they cast pity on your name, and wondered what kind of kindness this could be to leave you where you could be left, unwarranted to all but us circling your roof of fire and straw. Night moves at the welter pools. The summer slips, the winter hoars. Eleven times the long hand crosses short. We go so far. One day the rings will slip from your fingers, but not from yours. Everything we almost are, we lose my animal. You cannot know how hard in love you are. In a moment, Maya and Neil will join us on stage. Uh, I'm going to read one more. And thank you very much for listening. It's called West. What is west but water? What is west but the and of land and light? What is there but the day rerun, the replaying of wake and darkness? Nothing on my line but Lady Bay and Southern Down, nothing but mizzen and ocean. When the westerlies come, I'll not be facing the Atlantic's mind of nothing. All I seek is a window to the east, a square of sunrise, not a shading sea. What is west but our morning shadow, the place you are behind me? Thank you very much.
0: Thank you both very much for those wonderful readings. Um, I'd like to start off with the question of place, because as you all have heard from Matthew's uh, reading, his book is very much focused on uh, Britain, Ireland, specific places, and the language of those places. And what I find interesting about Maya's book is that, whereas her first book was very based on America, her second book, a lot of the places in it are from your time in, in England and Scotland. Um, and there's also a strange relationship that I think there is in your work with um, the language itself is sort of Anglo-American. Um, your influences would include uh, Larkin that you've mentioned, Auden. Edward Wal-
1: Thomas, actually. Edward Thomas,
0: <laughs> Wallace Stevens, and so on. So it's, it's, it's a kind of roll call of Anglo-American models, a bit like Auden in a way, with the way he straddled the transatlantic. But the imagination seems to be more Romanian. Um, so I was wondering whether you could both talk about those particular aspects of your work.
2: He looked at me while I had a glass of water. Um, absolutely. I, um, the question of place in writing is, is an interesting one, because often we're writing about places that we're already not at and that are behind us somehow, and um, I suppose for me, perhaps that's one of those ideas about common time. Um, Eliot says something very interesting about um, literature. He thinks that all literature happens at once, Mm. Um, and by that he meant that um, the literature of today is informed by the literature of tomorrow. That makes sense, we can all understand that, but he actually meant something more complicated than that, that when we write in the contemporary, we change the literature of the past, how is that possible, you're asking? Well, mm-hmm. it's possible because as we write, we find out more, we know more, we know more about the past as we research. And as we know more about the past, it changes our opinion of the past. So as we write, we change the past as well as the future. And that, for him, it meant that everything circulated in time at the same time. It was all common, whether it's Homer or the Wasteland. Um, and for me, that, that same idea percolates around with, with place as well. And um, I think that's one of the great connectednesses that I feel When I try to engage in writing. Uh, And often it takes the form of place, but I think really the place is a sort of symbol for Mm -hmm. the the collective space of the act that I try and get involved with, I think. So that's possibly why place becomes such a strong thought for me.
1: I love that idea of simultaneity. I think that's so. I'm going to switch my chair just a little because I feel like my back is slightly to you. Hi. Yes, I think, and I think part of the first part of your response as well about sort of not being there by the time you start writing, right, um, is essential and I think because I was going back and forth between just sort of practically speaking between the States and um, London, things that were happening here became clear when I was over there as it were and vice versa because there was somewhat more distance, right? Um, But I'm also quite interested in place as earth, right? What does it mean to be here at this time? And as you said, with an eye towards the past and how that changes how we proceed write um, from day to day. And then the question of imagination. I mean, I think anyone who's, um, I grew up trilingual, and anyone who speaks multiple languages knows that there's this. It is there's a kind of translation that's happening all the time anyway, based on the nuances of words. And um, that's particularly why I so resonate with that poem about local language and the way it's infused with the kind of imagination and sensibility that cannot, sort of, once it's taken out of that context, fully be relayed again. Um, I find all of that quite generative because in part, that's what the poem is there to do, right? It's to put pressure on the language and to re-centralize it and reorient it and to, to enact essentially this dilemma of the untranslatableness of moving from one place to another, one language to another. Um, so I think my relationship to place, yes, is, is one that's intrinsically generative and interested in more than one way of seeing, I suppose, yeah.
0: Um. Coming back to that part of the introduction I read uh, about your research, um, how heightened senses of attention induced by crises of faith and by wonder, respectively, spurred Romantic and Victorian poets to generate formally innovative works. I mean that's true of your own work as well. But I was wondering whether you could actually talk a little about the difference between the Romantic and the Victorians and in, in innovation.
1: Sure. Um, well, for my MA, I looked at specifically at my, my first poet love was Gerard Manley Hopkins. So looking at Hopkins and Dickinson and how their crises of faith informed really interesting sort of formal prosaic things in the work, right? So the prosody um, of sort of the later sonnets versus Dickinson adapting meter in really interesting ways, both had a very, very complicated relationship to faith. Um, And then looking at wonder, you know, as I sort of said, I was interested in in how poets um, and the romantics specifically because they speak so much about wonder and imagination. Um, Coleridge and Wordsworth are sort of two of the people I most looked at, but I looked of course at keats um, and Rilke, and actually Rilke's archaic torso of Apollo, if we have that ending line in our heads it ends um, you know he it's this amazing description, very close description of the um torso, and it's sort of what you'd imagine, it's beautiful. Um, And then it ends for there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life, and that's it, right? You must change your life, that's the directive we're given. And I think my entire interest and wonder began in that, that a poet could say to you after describing a marble torso, there's no place that does not see you, you must change your life. I thought, wow, there's something really interesting here because even if we study that poem line by line, we will not come to a conclusion about how that ending works precisely. It's mysterious, but it contains, again, a directive that feels akin to wonder. It feels like you've been breached by it. Um, so again, I'm, I'm interested in, in how language that is so contained in theory, in fact, can do something quite explosive and uncontained once it's in the reader, once it's metabolized by the reader, right? I think I answered the question, but I don't remember the question, to be honest, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <laughs> once I start speaking.
0: And Matthew, um, in a sense, I made that comparison with your poetry and, and nature writing. Um, in a way, you're writing about the world with a sense of wonder, as a naturalist mm. might. Um, I wonder whether you see that in your work, that sense of
2: scrutiny uh, being something much deeper than that. Well, I think, I think if you're lucky enough to have good health and... You know, uh, enough money to live on and kind people around you, um, then life can be a total wonder. And I think we can lose sight of that. Um, but it, it's we see it in the eyes of the people around us sometimes, particularly in children. And it's one of the things that happen in the book. I think is re-seeing the world. And this particular book perhaps begins in collapse. You know, it's lovely to say your book collapses at the beginning, but this book does. My book does kind of collapse at the beginning. And I think what perhaps happens after that is an attempt to get back on its feet and um, in, in in that perhaps in a related sense to the wonder that Maya writes so brilliantly about it, it does look to find that and I hope finds it because certainly I feel it and mm. I, I feel extraordinarily lucky to be involved in well not just being here this afternoon but all of it day mm. by day um, and if you think of poetry as a form of song and uh, you know we, we, we sing as a form of giving and as a, as a form of community, a form of telling tales and a form of giving back and I see poetry very much like that, an act of community for the community mm. and not just a private act that happens like this. Mm. Um, I think that, that, that in some ways is, is, a, is a response to what you're talking about mm. I think.
0: Now you've both read each other's books before this event. And so uh, I have preempted. I have told it's about going to be a this. test, isn't it? To, whether you
2: each have a question you'd like to ask each other about each other's work. work. Oh, neat! That was very good that he did that. Well done. All right. Okay. Shall I start then? <laughs> um, well, I suppose one of the things I, I loved some of the acoustics of this book. I thought you had such an astonishing ear, Maya. And there were there's one there's one stanza where you move through all the vowels and the a e o u in this most beautiful and often sort of Anglo-Saxon. Um, sound tapestry as well, and Neil was thinking was talking a little bit about the Anglo-American thing too, and I thought I thought that was so interesting because there were sounds that seemed um, so much from these islands, and you've even got a poem about the M40, of mm-hmm. course. After all, you know what? Of course, I mean, <laughs> 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 who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was was a remarkable piece of grounding as well. But where do you hear? I mean, where do you hear both continents and? multiple multiple languages
1: um you know i want to say first and foremost i'm so grateful to this place i'm so grateful to the uk because it's always felt i it's always been really where i felt most at home the pace of it the the literary tradition um the friends and the sort of the families i feel i have here are so central so i most humbly just want to say thank you because i feel i've been so welcomed and so fortunate to be able to to make a part at least a partial home here Um, you know, I like what I like. And I always think it's very funny because I have a role where I read a lot of contemporary poetry, but I think I'm I'm sort of like not done thinking about the past at all in any way. I'm not done with the language of the past. I could really just sit in in it forever, I think. Um, And so I I don't, you know, again, I'm, I'm navigating by a kind as you are of intuition that feels linked to this greater project that has nothing to do really with writing poems for publication, but paying attention and wanting to be here for 95 years, if I'm lucky. Um, and that all feels very much a part of this is, is a kind of listening. Um, and, and I couldn't tell you at all where it comes <laughs> from, except to say that, um, you know, I, I think possibly things like the prelude I go back to all the time. I'm, I, I am interested in, in that kind of um, again attention is the thing I say but I I was thinking I'm going to actually direct this into my question about your work Um, you talked about sort of I love that line um, unharmed and unharming or unharming and unharmed right which which also reminds me of Blake and again back to this romantic tradition and um, to the to the power of naming so I think you know and, and naming in original ways, right? Not just naming and, and cataloging the world of the experience. So where sort of do you place that impulse to both sort of name something as what it is and then see it again, right? To allow the name to allow us to see it anew, right? That relationship between a name seeming fixed, but in fact, giving us an opportunity to reimagine what something is.
2: Yeah, I suppose naming is, again, perhaps that does take us back into childhood, which is one mm-hmm. of the themes I think running through the readings today. Um, and that that thrill, and word and world capturing of the naming of things, which I suppose um, that nomenclature is, is something that we all do in poetry. We're all interested in, and it's it's a form of marking out time as well as place and meaning, I suppose. And hard hard not to do, but also easy to overdo. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the poem you mentioned with its its list of words. Every time I read it, I think there is two or three too many in here, and you know where to stop, but it's hard to stop because it's one of your driving instincts, mm-hmm. isn't it, whether it's mm-hmm. the phonemes, or the place names, or the or the meaning of those personal encounters, or the way in which the words shift, wonder mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. wound to wonder, you know, mm-hmm. um, as, as you do so brilliantly. Um, but it, I suppose um, rather like translation can be too, it, it's slightly about putting a shape cutter in time, and it gives you this little outline, even if the time then moves on, and um, and, and that seems to be an instinctively impossible thing to stop doing when you're engaged in poetry.
1: A shape cutter in time. I just want to make sure everyone heard that. That's beautiful.
2: I, I should
0: Thank add for so anyone much. in the audience uh, that, uh, like Eliot, uh, Matthew has wonderful notes at the back of his book, oh, and all goodness. of those words in the Hansa poem are glossed at the back of the book, so you can then find out for yourselves. Um, so we'd like to finish off with asking each of you to read one short poem to finish with. Of course. I, either seated or from there, whichever you prefer. What
2: would you prefer? i like to stand. Okay, go for it. Would you like you to? go can? for it. Okay. Do you want to go for it? Okay. One short poem um, from me. Um, and given that we were just finishing on East Anglia, I'll take one from there. And it's a short poem called The Stays. Uh, this, a stays um, is a landing or a a walkway, a short promontory out to sea, usually nailed together with rusty nails and likely to fall in if you're standing on it. The Stays. How long has it looked this way, these shallows glazed with sundown? As around them the saltings settle. The gulls, for once, have given up on quarrel. A woman whistles to her dog. And out in the estuary where the pintails nestle, a red boat rides on a long white rope. Further still, the curve of the earth is unmissable. Why ever did they think it flat? Mm. Inshore, butterflies bloom from the aster. I thought there would be more time. Mm.
1: Okay. May I borrow this? Um, This poem borrows from Keats and and Rumi um, on the nature of suffering. All inner life runs at some delay, like the martyr amazed at hunger's slow subsiding. The rain at last arrived, and with it, the peculiar compulsion to keep living. On suffering, philosophers were always undecided to school an intelligence and make it a soul. The wound is where the light enters us, and so on. The wound is where the light enters us, There shines the face of the beloved like a headlamp in the dark.